in Acts chapter um, 15. We're at a breakneck pace. I think we're at Sermon 60. So maybe when my great-grandchildren are born, we'll be wrapping this, um, wrapping this puppy up. J.K., J.K. Acts um, 15. I've actually shortened the... Um, so I've changed everything around, which is never a good sign. Um, Acts 15... Now that we have our fancy bulletin covers, I'm loath to <laughs> print a new bulletin. So, um, I don't know. It's the frugality in me. Um, it's the Jerusalem Council. What we're going to look at is Acts 15, 13 through 21. And actually, there are three parts of the larger section. We're going to look at the first part. And what I just gave you is the address of James. And we're going to be considering what God the Holy Spirit has for us in light of the address of, um, of James. And then if the Lord gives us uh, next week, perhaps we'll take the other two as one or maybe two whole sermons um, separate. But uh, verse 13, 21. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. After they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I'll restore its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but we write to them, to, that they may abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from that which is strangled from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. The reading of God's word. May he bless it to the glory of his name and to the extension of his church. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, you alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Lord. You are the great I Am. Uh, beside you, there is no other God. All of the other gods of the, the, of the nations, Lord, they are no God, only you. And Lord, you have gifted us with the ability to know you and to be known by you, to love you and to be loved by you, and to serve you. Speak to us now, God, through your word. Have mercy upon me, almighty God, thou my great Jehovah. May the thoughts of my heart, the meditation of my heart, Lord, and the words of my lips, may they be pleasing, acceptable to you, being true according to your word. And for all of us, again, O God, may we have the requisite faith that we would receive these words and we would be continuously and increasingly conformed into your holy image, Jesus Christ. And if there are any who have come into this church building today, who as of this moment are not converted, may today be the day, Lord God, that you open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears and cause the dead to come alive in Christ. Through the ministry of the word we pray. Amen. Obviously, our scripture passage is in the larger context of the particular passage, 
kind of section that we've been in, in the larger context of the book of Acts, which is the advance of the kingdom of Christ. And if I were to reference that, the book of Acts is about the obedience of Christ's servants, the ministry of Christ within them, to carry out the Great Commission. The Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, that the Christian religion is an evangelical religion. Evangel means good news. Christ is the, the great evangel. He sends out his ministers to evangelize, to give out the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, or God in Christ saves sinners. And he sends us out everywhere, from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you, if you know your Bible, you know I'm quoting Acts chapter 1, verse 9. So before Christ ascends to heaven, he says, this is what I want you to do. Go everywhere and tell, tell every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation that there is forgiveness of sins in Christ. And so that's the larger book of Acts. And what we've been looking at is known as the Jerusalem Council or the Ju- Jerusalem Presbytery. The word presbytery comes from a Greek word which means elders. It's just rule by elder, representative rule. The two, the two fundamental tenets of Presbyterian polity or church government is plurality of elders. You have to have more than one elder, which is why Paul tells Titus, I, I tell Titus to, to, to establish elders, plural, you have to have at least two in every city, in every churches. And then there's a connectionalism. And what we're seeing in this Jerusalem Council or Jerusalem Presbytery is that there's a, there's a problem in the Antiochian church in Syria. You remember there's an Antioch t- Turkey um, and then there's an Antioch in Syria. And the, there's a problem in Syria. And these Gentile people have come to faith in Christ. And now there's a question about, do they have to be circumcised? Should they keep the, the law of God to be saved? And so they send back to Jerusalem, to the leaders of the church there, to James and to Peter. And then there's this church synod, this ecclesiastical synod. There's a discussion, a debate. What's the gospel? What's not the gospel? But you see the connectionalism that the... The Gentile believer has with the Jewish believer. The church in Syria has with the church in Judea. So we mentioned last week, it's not a big point of my sermon. I don't believe that pure congregationalism is biblical. You know, I mentioned the pure congregationalism without any kind of connectionalism. A lot of congregational churches do have a looser form of connectionalism, the Southern Baptist Church being one of them. But I I digress. My purpose is not to talk on church polity. But that's what's going on. The gospel has gone forth. The gospel has been faithfully preached. Christ pays for our sins. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be what? Someone say it. Saved. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are there things in the Bible that are difficult to understand? Gobs. I've been here 22 years in January and 20 years ago there were things, subjects on the Bible I thought I knew like this. And as I've grown I thought, boy howdy, I don't quite know exactly what I used to think I knew perfectly. There are tons of things. How the sovereignty of God works with the responsibility of man. I'm never going to untie that Gordian knot until I go home. But the gospel is not one of those things. The gospel is so clear that through the use of ordinary means, we could understand what it is. I understand the efficacy and the grace of God in revealing this savingly to us. I understand that. But the gospel is not something which is tricky. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Believe. That's the gospel. The gospel goes out. Christ merits all, even the ability to repent and believe, which God requires that we repent and believe. It's gifted. It's an evangelical grace. 
And, and then as soon as the gospel co- comes out, right on its heels, gospel corruptors come in. And the corruption of the gospel that we're looking at, that's being discussed at the Jerusalem Council, is a legalistic corruption of the gospel. You have an antinomian corruption of the gospel, which is eat, drink, and be merry, come to Jesus and live like a pig and go to heaven. That's not true. Read the Bible. Read Romans chapter 6. So read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. You say you're born again and then you're living in sin. Jesus is going to say to you what I said in Matthew 7. Depart from you, worker of what? I never knew you. So the antinomian is wrong, but the legalist is wrong. So the gospel of grace goes forth, and the legalist says, no, no, no. It's not all Jesus pays for our work. It's partly Jesus and partly me. It's not all the work of Christ. It's part the work of Christ and part your work, which is why the debate that they're having is, yes, you should believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised to go to heaven. Beware of the people that say you have to be baptized. You have to be baptized in our church. You have to be dunked in order to go to heaven. We're not saying in in order to be obedient to the word. That's another discussion. In order to be saved. You have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's legalism. And so there's a big debate on that. And I want you to ask, I want to ask you this question. Is it good news to hear that Jesus completely pays for on the cross? What does he say? It is what on the cross? Finished. Is, it, it, and he's paying for the sins of his people completely. When he says tetelestai, finished, he means tetelestai, done, finito. Not one remaining. He, he takes all of the wrath of God. He assuages all of the justice of God, all of it, both in his passive and his active obedience. He takes the curse and he, he, he acquires the merit. Is that good news for you and me as sinner, sinners? Oh yeah, it's great news. That's why we call it good news gospel. But is this good news? Jesus will pay for 80 of your sins, but you really have to be, you have to be on your game. You've got to keep the law of Moses for the other. And if you can't keep the law of Moses for the other, sorry, you're not going to heaven. Is that good news? Our righteous deeds before the feet of a holy God, what does the Bible say that they are? They're filthy rags. We have a whole section. I I used to be a Roman Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm a Protestant. So don't tell me Protestants don't believe in the doctrine of good works. Of course we do. We have a whole section in our confession, chapter 16. Does God accept our good works? Yes, but he accepts our good works in Christ by looking at us through, through Jesus. So we are accepted. Therefore, our works are accepted in Christ, the acceptable one. But if God were to deal with us according to strict justice, our best deeds deserve what? Hell. <laughs> That's what they deserve. I went to church. Woo! I read the Bible. Woo! And if it wasn't looking through the lenses or through the mediatorial office of Jesus, what would he see? A filthy rag. So tacking works on to the finished work of Christ is in good news. It's horrible news because it destroys the grace of God, which means gift. So... You have the corruption of the gospel. This synod, this church synod, this church presbytery of apostles and elders, the leaders in the church, there is structure in the church. We'll talk about that maybe later. It is for the defense of the gospel. We mentioned last week, should we be, as Christian folks, gentle and kind and not prone to pugnaciousness, which means we want to fight with everybody. We've all met... Many of us, probably most of us in this church, came from Arminianism into Calvinism. And what's the first thing that happens when you become a new Calvinist? 
You go looking for your Arminian mom or your Arminian dad to do what? You don't know anything about the Bible. Boom, boom, boom. Here's my Ephesians, whatever. Here's my Romans 8, 9. And then like our mom and dad look at us, and I, you know that I think Arminians are just inconsistent Calvinists, most of them. They're not consistent Arminians. They don't really think their finger's on the scale. If you think your finger's on the scale, it's a bad idea. We shouldn't be prone to pugnaciousness. We should be gentle and lamb-like. It's all true. But there is a time to stand up for the truth. And that's what's going on here. They're defending the truth of the Lord Jesus. And how this church council proceeds is we see that the speeches in defense of the gospel have been very orderly. First, it was the Apostle Peter that says, remember, God the Holy Spirit showed me back in Acts chapter 10 that, that God says, D- Peter, kill all those unclean animals. He's never my Lord. And God said, don't call what I'm calling unclean, uh, clean, unclean. And did he mean critters? No, he meant pe- people. And, and Peter understood that he meant people. And before that, he said, Jews are good and Gentiles are what? Bad. So there's a racial or an ethnic element to, to Peter's un- misunderstanding prior. And he even fails in the book of Galatians, chapter 1 or chapter, chapter 2. For fear of the Jews, he doesn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. That racial, cultural, ethnic element. But the gospel obliterates all of that. And so he says, don't call these Gentiles unclean because I, I make them clean in Christ. And so Peter speaks first, and then you have the apostle Paul, and then you have Paul, uh, Paul's assistant Barnabas, who's also called an apostle, generically speaking, mean a sent one. And then here what we're looking at is the apostle James. He, he, he adds his words to what um, we call the defense of the gospel. The, the, word, the Greek word for defense in reference to the gospel is apolog- apologia. Um, I'm butchering the pronunciation. We get our English word apologet- apologetics from that. I was trained in Vintilian apologetics. I never understood it. I was thankful to get out of seminary. But um, with it, it, it's just a presupposition. Here's what the Bible says. For me, it's Bible says, whether you follow Gordon Clark or... And, and there, uh, I won't get into that. I'll get myself too far afield. It was a debate on epistemology. I, and Herman Huxman said it should have never been asked in, in the ordinary church. It should be something wrangled over among ministers. But that's, I digress. That word defense of the gospel, this is how the Apostle Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense. To always be ready to make a defense of Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One theologian calls it the doctrine, uh, the, the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther said, "On that cornerstone, the church is built. You're either a Christian or not a Christian." By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone are we justified. Be ready to make a defense of that to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you. Now, I want to finish this. So, everyone, if your mom asks you, so why are you not going to St. Pat's? Because I know Christ. (laughs) Because Christ paid it all. I don't have to pay any of it. it. He pays it all. But notice how he says to make the defense, the propositional defense, yet with gentleness and reverence. 
This is what we're going to see James doing with gentleness and with reverence. He defends the cause or the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't come swinging a baseball bat. Swinging a baseball bat either means that we're in the flesh or we're acting fleshly as immature Christians. It's not a sign of Christ-likeness when we're ready to knock people in the teeth who don't believe the gospel of, of grace. If we're true believers, it means we're acting like an unbeliever. We, we, we're to, with gentleness and reverence. And do I understand there's a time to amp, amplify the volume and the intensity and flip over a table, figuratively speaking? Yes. But the way that we defend the gospel is with gentleness and reverence. But we propositionally, we should get the gospel right. We should know what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And then from the principle of love to, to minister that. All of us know this. You get more fly, flies with what? Honey. And some Christians think you get more flies with vinegar. But we're not, the, the Christians that use the vinegar, they're not looking for the fly. They're just looking to win an argument. And we don't want to win an argument. We want to tell people the truth of Christ and let the Holy Spirit convert them. That's what's going on. So for the rest of the time together, we're going to consider the speech that God the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle James to give in the defense of Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice without any additions from the law of Moses. All Christ's merit, none of man's merit. That's, that's the cornerstone of the gospel. So look at verse 13. After they saw, stopped speaking, James answered... The very first thing that we see as we're just unpacking the speech of James is that James, in this church court, in the defense of Christ alone, gospel, he answers in a very orderly fashion, and he's very respectful to his brothers in the faith. Now, he's, he's inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And apostleship or office does not mean that one has infinite knowledge on all things at all times or that God the Holy Spirit is not working through another person, in this case the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul. How do, how do Gentile leaders act? Gentile leader, I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, don't be a Gentile leader. I want you to be a, a Christian leader. Christian leaders are to do what? We're to be fancy foot washers. If you want to be the greatest servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you should mean, means what? That you should stoop the lowest. That you should be the servant of, of all. So Christ turns the order of things on its head. The pagan, the unbeliever, the flesh says, if I'm the man, then I'm the man. And then if, if James were an unconverted man, if he was ordering his speech after, after the flesh, what would he say? Hey, I'm speaking here. But the Holy Spirit, working through the, the Apostle James, shows us the humility of James. Here is this teacher of Christ who's not so proud or have such a high opinion of himself that he, he can't be quiet long enough to be taught of Christ by other servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, many years ago, in our Presbytery meeting, there was an old man. He's in glory now. He was a PCA minister that came into an o, a PC, OPC church to help us out, uh, Robert Raymond. 
wrote a systematic theology. He, phenomenal, phenomenal. He has a couple of unique views, and he's so smart that I didn't understand his views because that's how smart he is. And we, we have to examine guys when they come in from outside. And so we're examining him. I'm in my late 30s, early 40s at the time, and I'm listening, and I'm like, wow, this guy's a genius. He wrote his own systematic theology. This guy's a rock star. He's been a minister since he's like 20, and now he's like 86. And a 30-year-old guy goes, okay, I got a question for you. And I'm like, oh. And he sounded like a nudnik. Like, here is this kid that shouldn't have even got off his chair to say to this old man who has walked with the Lord and knew the Lord, hey, I'm talking here. And of course, because the kid was a presbyter, a kid who was a presbyter examining the older father in the faith, he had the right to stand up but he didn't have the, the graced humility. And I remember the old guy said, young man, and you're like, oh man, he's got you already. What you're asking means that when I die, I get to see Jesus. Now, can someone help me down because I have to sit down? And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. James shows in the defense of the gospel, graced humility. It's okay to humble ourselves. It's a sign of graced, spirit-wrought wisdom to place ourselves, to be quiet while another brother teaches us what they know about God in Christ. And so, Christian people, we should be a humble people. It doesn't mean that we're doormats. But, but um, a proud Christian and a, crowd, a proud minister? I mean, it's almost... What's the saying? The Puritans would say that a Christ-like minister is a mighty instrument in God's hands. But they would also say that an unchrist-like minister, a minister that is sinful, is a horrible instrument in the hands of Satan. It's not helpful, beloved, when we're proud. And when we are humble, and we humble ourselves before the brothers, a submission to the brothers, um, we, we manifest that the gospel is working in our lives. Now, he, after they stop speaking, James answers. In addition to the humility of James, we also see the wisdom of James. And he waits till the other brothers have made their defense, their apologia, uh, of, 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 of by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then after they stop speaking, then he begins to give his answer. All of us have known people that we're waiting for them to take a breath so that we could jump in and add our... But they, they never take a breath. And you're thinking, can you... The, the diaphragm, can you ever stop? And they never stop. What we're looking at is not just the humility of James, but we're looking at the wisdom of James. The Bible says this. We all should manifest this. He who gives an answer before he hears... He gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. It's a truism that many Christians who are amateur, apologetic people, that they give an answer before they fully thought out what's going on. And what they're doing is while the other person is saying, well, this is what I think the Bible teaches, they're not even listening to that other brother or sister. What are they doing? They're already formulating their response. So they're listening to respond 
They're not listening to understand the other brother or sister's, potential brother or sister's position. Many years ago in seminary, I took part in a debate. It was a Samadhi-only debate, and the, 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 the president of the seminary, Dr. Piper, said, okay, Shortman, you have the Samadhi-only, no music instruments. That's one side of the debate. The other guy has hymnody with mu- musical instruments. I said, well, Dr. P., that's not my position. He said, I don't care if it's your position. I want you to study the position, and then you're going to debate it out, and then you'll understand. You'll understand both sides better. And one of my friends who was a, 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 a former Presbyterian minister, he said, well, John, this was the classic position of the Presbyterian church. I said, really? And, and now I'm listening to understand what's being debated. That's what the Apostle James does. He, 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 he waits. When we speak, before we really listen, it's a sign of the flesh. It's a, it's a manifestation of pride. You need to stop talking so I can talk. James doesn't have that. And it's also a sign, and this is what James, mani- he, he manifests the opposite of that. When Christians speak before they really listen, Let's presuppose they're born again. It's a sign of Christian immaturity, like that young fellow. So it's a sign of fleshliness, but it's a sign of fleshly immaturity in the life of a true believer. James doesn't do, it, do that. He waits to these, these brothers are perverting the gospel. Well, they're not brothers, but they're perverting the gospel. They're adding works to Christ's work, our work to Christ's work. And then he waits. And so what? You have to, you have to be circumcised to be saved? Yeah. And you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? And so he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. And it shows, um, it shows that he has graced wisdom. What does the Bible say, book of James, that we should be um, quick to listen and slow to what? Slow to speak. And the slow to speak is slow to respond. You're waiting to hear. So where do you get that? Where do you get that idea from? What text are you using? Let's interact with that. And so we see the graced humility of James, the graced Wisdom of James. I, I, let me say this before I move on. Ordinarily, it's a sign of the flesh when we speak and don't allow others to speak and we're quick to respond without allowing others to respond and really listen to it. Ordinarily, it's a sign of sin. But I, I can give you a couple instances before I move on of perhaps some... Um, Reasons, non-sinful reasons why people would be verbose or quick to speak without really listening to other people. One is that silence for some people makes them extremely uncomfortable. And I'm just talking in an unsinful way. It just makes them nervous. And so they're waiting for you to speak so they don't become frustrated. And if they're in a room where everybody's just looking out the window because their anxiety level is already just bubbling under the surface, they just fill in the words. So it's not necessarily a sign of pride that just silence makes them anxious. And then I'm going to throw this out there, and I'm not an amateur uh, psychoanalyst. Um, Autism. There are folks with certain forms of autism that are extremely verbose. They, They don't take a breath. And so let's not... Generally, it's a sign of fleshly immaturity when Christians speak without listening, but let's be gentle, and gentle as a dove, intruded as a serpent. Some folks have um, a form of autism where they just, they don't take a breath. And for those folks, we should be more piteous and compassionate. So 
Now, now James's advice. Look at the way that James opens up with this humility and um, in wisdom. He says what? He calls them what? He says, brothers, um, listen to me. He thinks of the people in this particular church council uh, as brothers. Um, those who truly believe in the gospel of the cross, as Paul talks about it, 1 Corinthians 1, Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 1, like 16, 17, somewhere in there, the message of the cross, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, the cross. So the cross, Christ's atoning sacrifice, is the, is the, the essence of the good news, that he, his sacrifice pays for our sins. He believes that people that preach that and believe that are his brothers, and then by application, sisters in Jesus Christ. So I will just say this. He begins his address this way. Whatever we think, sometimes people will say, you don't know what's in my heart. Well, that's true. I don't know totally what's in your heart, but if I am around you long enough, I will know a little bit of what's in your heart. Why? This is in Matthew 12. It's coming out of your mouth. Jesus says what's in your heart is coming out. Now, we can dress it up, but you can't dress it up all the time. And maybe you can dress it up in church. Oh, praise God, brother. Praise God, sister. You can dress it up. You can't dress it up at the house. Your kids are going to know because you're going to take your coat off and put on your real coat if you're a hypocrite, and your kids are going to watch you. Whatever we believe about another Christian is coming out of our mouth. What's roasting the pastor? Praise God, Pastor, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Kids, that kid couldn't preach, that guy couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag. And, then, and so the kids know what you really think, right? What we think about another Christian and how we feel, I hate to use the feeling word, I think God created feelings, sorry. How we feel emotionally about them is coming out. And it's coming out in our words. So this man, James, thinks that people that profess the true gospel of Jesus are his brothers, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And that's the whole point. Black, white, yellow, red, rich, poor, free, slave, brother. Brother, brother, brother. That's what he thinks. Now, you could ask me, well, Pastor John, is he referring to these gospel corruptors, these legalists, as brothers? Is he? Now, I'm going to answer this way. Um, being raised a Roman Catholic, we didn't use the term brother. And then Presbyterians ordinarily don't use the term brother. I spent a good amount of time in Baptistic churches, Pentecostal even. I, I never got the super, but because I'm too quiet. But in those other Baptistic churches, evangelical churches, we would refer to people as brother or sister. It's legitimate. It's biblical. And so if you think, well, pastor, are you going off the Presbyterian uh, rails, and when you call people brother or sister, no, it's biblical. But brother in the Bible can take on various meanings or senses. It could be blood brother. And I'll just throw this out there, no extra charge. If your blood brother or sister or mom or dad is not a believer, and you're a believer, and I've heard people say, I've had people in this church that are not here anymore, um, I said something, and they're like, oh, your mother is not your uh, a sister, she, she, who's your mother? The believing person's your mother. I said, I get that, but my mom's my mom. I mean, you get whatever you, whatever you say. My unbelieving sister, my, both of them, my mom, my dad who are gone, 
you're going to find out something, which if you're not a kid, you, you'll, blood is thicker than water a lot of times. Am I not right with that? So brother can mean blood brother. The gospel doesn't destroy filial relationships. I argue you should read Matthew Henry on this. Are they my brother in Jesus? No, but it's still a legitimate expression of filial relationship. I digress. So it can mean physical brother. But also the Bible uses the word brother in terms of countrymen. I am a Yankee by birth. And God has taken me from there and brought me here to the land of, of my sojourn, which I think I'll die here. And then they'll take my heart and bury it on Cape Cod. But, but, but I'm, down, I'm down here. And so Paul referred to unbelieving Israelites as his what? Brothers. This case, I'm answering, did he call these gospel corruptors brothers? Did the Apostle Paul call unbelieving Jews brothers? And the answer is Yes. In the book of Romans, clearly, I think one time in, in Colossians, in uh, 1 Corinthians. He considers them his brothers as fellow Israelites. So, I have an affinity for certain kind of sinful sin groups, drunks and druggies and those kind of things. Or I have an affinity, you take me anywhere, and people clip their R's. And I know immediately, I know immediately, ah, a tear comes to my eye. And the same thing if you were raised in some part of the country and you, some part of the world and you say, ah, look, they come from UP, they're whatever. Hey, they're, they're, I have a filial connection with them. That's one way. Now, according to the gospel, they may be brother Israelites or brother Americans or brother Indians or whatever they may be. But if they're not found in Christ, they could be enemies according to the gospel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. The, now, as regards to, to this... Is he referring to these gospel corruptors as brothers? I would say, in Christian kindness, we refer to other professing Christians as Christians, brothers or sisters in Christ, until proven otherwise. In other words, after the synod shows that these gospel corruptors are wrong according to the Bible, you'd not call them brothers, you'd call them friends. And in the context, you could call them enemy, but even in that, should be weeping with tears. So I think he starts off the discussion brothers, fathers and brothers. And then after it's shown that they are gospel corruptors, you would refer to them as friends. They would be, they would be evangelistic prospects. You could argue with me that an evangelist, evangelistic prospect should not be called friend. You could say if you're more feisty than I am, they're an enemy of the cross. I understand that. As Paul says, an enemy of the cross I say this with what, Paul says. Weeping. Weeping, 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 weeping. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How does that work? I don't know, but he did. So even if someone is an enemy of the cross, I call them friend. Um, my friend, even though they may at that time. So that answers that. He, what, what, what James is doing is not just manifesting humility and wisdom, He's manifesting the principle of Christian instruction, which Paul, through God the Holy Spirit, through Paul to Pastor Timothy says, the goal of our instruction is what? Is love. This, this is a wise servant of Jesus. How is he preaching Christ? How is he defending Christ being preached? With love. Love to God. And love to who? Who else? To people. I, it's been a long time ago since I was in seminary. 
And I remember asking guys, when, when did God the Holy Spirit call you to gospel ministry? Well, I, I don't know if I'm called to gospel ministry. I love theology. Well, do you love, do you love people? Nah, I, don't, I don't really love people. I love theology. I love to read Calvin. Awesome, awesome. But do you love people? No, I don't really love people because they're such a pain in the neck. Don't be a pastor. Don't be a pastor. You've got to love God. Love Christ. Love his people. Love the lost. Love the lost. Love people who are in error. Love them so much to tell them that they're in error. Beloved, what, is, what does God say about any expression of our Christian faith without love? What does God say? 1 Corinthians 13. What does he say? It's, it's like a clanging gong, which is irritating and what? Useless. For, for a minister to say, I'm going to defend the gospel, I just don't love you at all. God looks down and says, you're a hypocrite. And this is offensive to me. And you know what? If you don't love people and you're teaching them the Christian religion, will they pick up on that you don't love them very much? Oh, yeah. And what, should they, what, what, what will they do? Buy. Save it. I'm going to share the gospel. Check, gone. Another sinner going to hell. That's not what he does. Out of love. What does John 3.16 say? For God so what? Loved. This is the minister. So people think, John, in your old age, you're getting to be a squishy love muffin. I hope I get even squishier and even more love muffiny. Out of love. Love for Christ, love for his gospel, love for his word, love for his people, love for his church. And then he gives the answer. Now, the identity of this fellow, I think there are six or seven Jameses in the Bible, in the New Testament, excuse me. Let me give you a little bit of this guy's identity, and it will help us why he's so good at defending the gospel of Christ alone, the cross alone. Um, This fellow is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author of James, James 1.1. Paul refers to him as the half-brother of Jesus Christ in Galatians chapter 1. I think chapter 1, maybe chapter 2, but I think it's chapter 1. He calls him the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, this is not James. Remember the sons of thunder? They say to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and kill all these Samaritans because they didn't accept you? And Jesus says, why? Boy, how do you, can you... These are the guys he calls to the ministry. Should we kill the people that don't believe the gospel? And Jesus is like, this is not the program right now. When I come back, we'll deal with that when I come back. Right now, we're going to tell people to come to me that you might have life. This isn't James, the son of thunder. This is his half-brother. And why is that significant that this is the James that defends the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Christ alone for Jews and Gentiles? Why is that significant? Because there was a time that this particular James, the half-brother of Christ, was not a believer that Jesus was the Christ. Remember that? He didn't believe. He says concerning Jesus, why don't you go up to the, if you're going to be a a public somebody, why don't you go go up? Because the Bible says, for at that time he was not believing. This is part of the humiliation of Christ. His own brothers, half-brothers and sisters, didn't believe that he was the Christ. And what did this James think about Jesus before he thought he was the Christ? What did he think about him? My half-brother's out of his mind. And then what happened to him? He was converted. Where are the particulars about his conversion? They're not in the Bible because they're not significant for us. 
Deuteronomy 28, 28 says the revealed things belong to us and to our children. The hidden things belong to God. God doesn't want to show us the particulars of when he was converted. We know how he was converted. John 3, 1 through 9, he was born again. God the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, gave him faith to see Christ, Jesus is the Christ. It's Christ alone that pays for my sins. He's a converted man. And the significance is just this. Angels can't be preachers because they don't know what it's like to be a sinner and to be a redeemed sinner in Christ. Unbelievers can't be preachers of Christ because they don't know Christ. Who's the man that defends the gospel of Christ alone? A man that knows Christ alone. He's been born again. My, 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 my wife was raised a Hindu and her... Um, one of her uncles, Raipur Chacha, the uncle from Raipur City, said to me one time at our house, he's an older man in his 80, what is being born again? What, what does it mean to be born again? I put this to you. If someone asked you, what does it mean to be born again? What would you say? It's almost like Raipur Chacha. Unless you're born again, you don't know what it's like to be born again. If you're blind, deaf, and dumb, if you're Helen Keller and someone says, what does the elephant look like? You're thinking... Unless you have the senses, unless you... You've got to be born again to know what it's to be born again. That's exactly right. And I know it's like it's not the answer of the, the question, but it is the answer of the question. If you don't know Christ savingly, it means you're necros. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You don't know the gospel. Why? Because you're dead in your sins and trespasses. It takes a converted man to say, oh, you're not earning anything. What did Paul say before he was converted? I thought through my own law righteousness I was going to heaven. And when did Paul find out that that was dung? When he met Christ. When he knew the truth of Christ. And then this perverter of the gospel, Paul, became a defender of the, the, the gospel, Paul, because he knows Christ. James, the defender, is a converted man. He's born again. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the early part of his ministry, hammered that. You must be born again. Sometimes Christians talking to other professional Christians, you meet the, I meet this all the time. Baptized, Presbyterian, homeschooler, vote Republican. I'm Christian. What's the problem? No, do you know Jesus? Do you know what it is to repent? Do you know what it is to believe? Do you know him? And they look at me like, man, are you sure you're a Presbyterian? Should you be in the Baptist church somewhere? Right? He knows Christ. There's only one gospel. There are myriads of false gospels. A man that knows the true Christ can see those introducing a false Christ. Let me use this ordinary example. My wife used to be a teller in Boston. And they told her, in order to find a counterfeit, you don't study the counterfeits because there are myriads of them. What do you do? You study the true bill. And by the true bill, you know the false the converted minister knows the true gospel. And by the true gospel of the cross, he judges everything according to it. And natural man, man left to himself, man dead in his sins and his trespasses, I'm going to tell you something, is a legalist. The gospel of all natural people is law, 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 do, do, do. Whether they're false forms of Christians or they're pagans. Do, do, do. And the man who knows, St. Patrick, 
the conversion of St. Patrick. St. Patrick said, I was a rock in the muck and the mire, and God reached down and saved me in Christ. Do we have to believe? Do we have to repent? Yes, but he gives me the ability. The man that knows that, when he hears, get circumcised, get baptized, keep the law, do, 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 covenant faithfulness, he says, oh, that's a deviation. And then he affirms what Peter says. Peter's right, he says. And then he quotes, uh, is it uh, Amos? He quotes, Amos says, the prophets teach that salvation was never going to be believe in Messiah and keep the law. It was always going to be faith in Jesus. And it was never going to be for Jews only. Genesis 12, in the Christ, all of the what will be blessed. Go ahead, say it if you know the Bible. Families. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the Apostle James says, the Bible teaches this. Beloved, these gospel corruptors were in the church. They fancied themselves as Bible teachers, and they didn't know the Bible. God uses people that know him, and they they know the Bible, they love the Bible, to use the Bible. James says, the Bible. Amos says he was going to save Gentiles and graft them into the people of God. And the legalists, the Jewish legalists, they were racist in the, in the proper sense of the word. They said, no, it's only us Jews. And they actually have to become Jews to, 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 to be God's people. And the gospel says, that's not true. That the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, what kind of folk is he going to save? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. This is a Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And the person that thinks that they're going to get to heaven by their own good works because their family came over on the Mayflower, they hate that. Jesus says in John 10 to Jewish believers, I have other sheep of another flock and I'm going to call them and I'm going to gather them to be one flock under one shepherd. I I want to close with this. The true Christian church has the answer for all, for the ultimate problem of all human beings. And you could say, well, different classes of people have different needs. Our flesh makes a lot to do about our earthly distinctions. I have a certain level of melanin. My wife has another level of melanin. Some people have this level of education. Other people have another level of education. And we put a lot of stock in that. Do you know how much stock God puts in all of that kind of stuff? Zilto. Zilto, zilto. It's a a theological term. It means nothing. The only thing that matters, what think ye of Christ? Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? I ask every person this morning, you're raised in the church, not in the church, Baptist church, Reformed church. Are you in Christ? Are you born again? Do you believe? And I'm going to close with a quote and then I promise I'll be quiet. Therefore remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and being without God in the world. Ready? Here's the good news. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one. And he has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross. By having put to death the enmity, he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, Jews and Gentiles. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God the Holy Spirit. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.